0: Everybody, to another edition of the Inside ND Sports Podcast. I'm Tyler James. I'm joined once again by the one and only Eric Hansen. Together, we cover Notre Dame football, recruiting, and more for InsideNDSports.com on the Rivals Network. The spring semester is wrapping up at Notre Dame, and commencement will be here soon. So it is officially the offseason again for Notre Dame football. The Irish coaching staff is out on the recruiting trail for the evaluation period, and head coach Marcus Freeman is rubbing elbows with influential people and Notre Dame clubs across the country. Our guest today is plenty familiar with those circles as a former Notre Dame star, former NFL quarterback, current football analyst for Fox and CBS Sports, chairman of the Third and Gold Foundation for Veterans and the face of Notre Dame's Fun Foundation for Student Athletes. Brady Quinn, thanks for joining us.
1: Tyler Eric, uh, it's a pleasure to be on, uh, always excited to talk about the Fighting Irish.
0: Brady, let's start with with Sam Hartman, obviously the biggest news of the off season for Notre Dame. What have been your impression impressions of the quarterback? Uh, so far in his transition to Notre Dame.
1: Well, I I think you obviously know he's got a wealth of experience uh, having played so much football at Wake Forest. Um, You you sense that. You can see it in the way he played. I think the spring game was an example of that. Uh, He's just that steady, poised, calm hand that's out there. Um, Obviously a really smart kid, high football IQ. uh, To me, from the time watching him before he even got to Notre Dame, you could tell he was a tough, gritty player. Um, Obviously at Wake, you're not going to have the same – type of talent is what you're going up against especially with against teams like clemson for example in the acc but um i mean you'd see especially last year time and time again just blow for blow you know going down to the end um he would be able to you know put up some of those those numbers and stats to keep fighting so uh, he's got a lot of grit got a lot of fight in them uh, i think you know with that's going to come a lot of the leadership too as, as he gets more intergrained and, and uh, develops chemistry with a lot of the guys that he's around but uh, just a player that I think comes with a lot of excitement for Notre Dame fans and rightfully so uh, because of what he's already accomplished and I think what he could do for Notre Dame.
2: Brady, I understand you were able to get in for the legacy weekend and try not to be overly broad here. So I'll I'll say it this way. As you were on campus and uh, got a chance to be around the program, do you feel like in year two – there's been progress that this program is in a better place in year two of Marcus than in the year one.
1: I really do. Um, it, it's got such a a good feel to it, especially as a former student athlete, um, in particular of football. I just I get a better sense of feeling welcomed on campus. Um, there's more of a, I think an aggressive approach to bringing back guys and being around the program and being a part of the program. Uh, You get a sense of that family feel. And and it's funny, you know, you hear iterations of that or coaches and people talk about it in the past, but it has that genuine feel to it Uh, with the coaching staff, with the players, with their parents, uh, when you bump into them or when you kind of see them all together. And that's a powerful thing because I think it embodies what Notre Dame really looks to achieve with all of their students, not, you know, but also their student athletes and their experience there. So there's a buzz, there's a general feeling about it that I I feel like, you know, there's been a foundation that's been set and still building, but it's definitely getting to the point where I, I think it's got that unique feel that makes it truly Notre Dame, which is different from everywhere else in the country.
2: Just following up on that a little bit from a personal standpoint, do you, did you get a chance to talk to Sam Hartman or Tyler or Minchie or Angeli? And would you, do you ever kind of make, a point to reach out to guys like that, or do you kind of let them come to you if they want to?
1: Yeah, so I, I think it's always uh, an interesting question when people ask that, and um, I've had a chance to to be introduced to them and I bumped into them on campus and just kind of said hi. And I've I've always taken the approach of you know if you need to get a hold of me, you know, talk to coach, talk to anyone like they know how to get a hold of me, um, because there's there's a lot on their plate. You know, I remember being a freshman. Uh, you know, coming in the fall with everyone else, and and dealing with you know getting through training camp, then getting in the classes, and trying to manage it all, and, and it can be a lot to manage. Um, whether that's for Kenny Minchie, who who is a true freshman right now, uh, and somebody who's been there now for the spring, and hopefully it's a little easier transition once it once it comes to the fall, or someone like Sam Hartman, who's who's got a completely different. You know, feel for all the all the time and you spend in a classroom now, but you're coming to Notre Dame and it's 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 ratcheted up a little bit too with, with the, what the expectations are, and I think just the expectations around the football program and it being on the national stage where everything you do is monitored and talked about. So, uh, I've been pretty cognizant of that throughout the course of my time after being a Notre Dame quarterback in – providing myself to be available to them in whatever way I can be, but also being very understanding of the fact that they don't have a lot of time and um, they've got to, they've got to do things the way that they feel is best for them. You know, we're all wired differently and um, I can try to give them advice or try to give them a a piece of my experience and hopefully they can take things from that. But ultimately they have to make their own decisions and choices and and they've got to be able to find their own path along their journey at Notre Dame.
0: So after the end of spring practice, Tyler Buckner chose to enter the transfer portal and sort of follow Tommy Reese to Alabama. What are your thoughts on what his future will look like at Alabama?
1: Yeah, well, hopefully it's a future that involves, you know, playing or at least getting a shot to play. You know, I think that's what the transfer portal is, you know, essentially been for is for guys who feel like if they're not going to have an opportunity, then they can go somewhere else where they will have that opportunity. So, you know, to me, that's that's one way of looking at it. I try to, I always try to look at the bigger picture, you know, even going through a a coaching change from Ty Willingham to Charlie Weiss. um, I'd be lying if I said that at at some point in time during that transition, I, you know, before they even named coach Weiss as the head coach um, I hadn't thought about, okay, should I look to go somewhere else? Should I look to transfer? But I always came back to the foundation, which was the reason why I went to Notre Dame and that was for the degree that was for the kind of spiritual calling that I felt going there in the first place that was separate from football. Um, and so you know, I think I, I look at it more with a, a little different perspective where if it's only about football and and you feel like you're not getting a chance to go play, that's what the transfer portal is there for. But if you leave and you go somewhere else and you're not playing, it would be a shame to then go get a degree somewhere else where it's not going to stack up with the Notre Dame degree, as far as everything that uh, that encompasses in particular, the alumni networking. So uh, everyone's again everyone's gotta just make those decisions for themselves uh, I wish him the best he's a tremendous young man uh incredibly smart young man um and so hopefully he's he's making a wise decision that's best for his football career and I, I gotta be honest like i i you know it's he's not a he's not an name anymore, but I'm still pulling for the young man I really am
2: Brady, do you think um kids in the subsequent classes are kind of kind of Stop and look and see how many cautionary tales, how many great um, success stories there are. Or do you think this is just going to be this mad change of rosters every year that this is our new normal?
1: Well, I think there's two sides to this conversation. The first is the player, which there's always going to be the turnover for players who come in with the expectation of playing and they're not playing, or they should be, and you know maybe they're told they were going to be and now they're not. Um, those are always going to be there. I, I think the other side of the conversation are coaches and how they go about handling the transfer portal. Um, you look at clearly Deion Sanders you know, at, at Colorado right now and the way he's turned over that roster. I don't know that many coaches are going to take that same approach. I think as we look at this new world of college football and you look at roster construction, it's most likely going to mimic more what we see from the NFL level. Where you're trying to base the majority of your roster, and the foundation of your roster is going to be through the draft. You know that's where you're you're getting players who are cheaper labor at that point, where you're able to grow and develop, et cetera. Hopefully into to you know Pro Bowl caliber players, et cetera. Um, that that I think is the goal with college football now is you're you're signing high school players who are going to turn into those All Americans that you're looking for uh, as they develop over time, and then you supplement in. In the transfer portal, if there's a need due to injury, a need due to whatever the case may be, you know, maybe it could be thin at a position for depth, um, or you feel like, hey, there's a guy who really wants to come here and we feel like he could help us win football games. Uh, I think that's most likely the approach that you'll see most coaches embody. Um, now, you know, maybe even Deion Sanders would, would have about that approach if it wasn't year one for him and he feels like he's, you know, turning around a team that's a one win team. Um, but I think when you look at other places, that have been able to kind of, you know, take over as head coach and then have success. You know, Mel Tucker comes to of Michigan State uh, the year where he got his contract extension. You know, he had a bunch of true freshmen, I think 15 true freshmen, 15 transfers, and, and, you know, 30 new players on a roster is significant and they had success with it. So, you know, you see Lane Kiffin, Ole Miss is always part of the conversation as a bunch of players coming in, coming out. So it really comes down to that coach and the type of culture he's trying to create Um, And and that could be one in which it's very transactional where he's saying to the young man, I know what you're here about. You're here for football. So if you're coming here for football, you're going to have an opportunity to compete opportunity to play here. It is. And if you don't like it, go somewhere else then, Mm -hmm. or you can have one that wants to say, you're not just here for football. You know, we still believe in the student athlete, and those two things working together. So there's the degree component. There's everything else that comes along with it. And, and, And the transfer portal is a tool for you to use. Uh, and, and for us maybe to use if you're if you're you know not playing if you feel like you want to you know go play somewhere else, so be it. But uh, the reality is I think you'll see most coaches look to build through high school recruiting and and then supplement with the transfer portal as opposed to there being these big wide swings, unless you're maybe talking about first year head coaches who are, are looking at, you know, trying to try to make that that case. But I mean here's the thing is we're all watching it at Colorado and how their season goes this year will largely dictate, I think, how it's viewed moving forward and if other teams will try to implement that same approach. Because um, one thing you have to keep in mind is now prospective student-athletes can have unlimited official visits. Uh, and, and, and as a school, I believe you're only around 50-some or so. Right. So if you think about the predicament that Colorado's in, you know they might have given some official visits to players who are in the transfer portal looking to come there. And now they've got to not only deal with high school recruiting for the 2024 class you know, come summer, fall – Um, but now you have to deal with the transfer portal as well come that time of year. So you're going to be thin in how you want to utilize those official visits. Uh, And and of course you can have kids come out on an unofficial visit and it can mimic, you know, what an official visit looks like in this world of college football where there's not much oversight. Um, But, you know, at least from an official standpoint, that's, that's one stressor. I think the other thing is you have to be careful. You know, you, you let 70 guys transfer out or go into the portal and now they've got about 30 or so in that's not the depth that I think you're probably looking for and you could probably use an NFL roster and the 45 men that are active for game day or 46 whoever is now as, as, as a litmus test of saying, well, this is what an NFL team deals with. So if you're getting to your number three player uh, in college football at a position, it's probably not a good thing, right? You're, you're probably going to be hurt at that spot. So th- there is a thought to like, how, how many players do you really need? But I also think that's short-sighted for the long-term development of your roster, the health of your roster, et cetera. As you go through a season, I mean, you've got to have a lot of DBs. You've got to have a lot of wide receivers. There, there has to be more depth. A lot of those positions uh, than sometimes I, I think people, people realize.
0: Brady, speaking of all that turnover, Notre Dame's offensive coaching staff had pretty significant turnover this off season with offensive coordinator, Jared Parker, quarterbacks coach, Gino gaduli and offensive line coach, Joe Rudolph. What is your sense for where Notre Dame's offense is heading with these new coaches uh, in those new positions?
1: I think it'll be um, somewhat the same of what it's been, but obviously coach Parker has to put his own twist on the things as will Joe Rudolph, you know, handling a lot of the protections and, and run blocking schemes along with Juno Godelli, you know, who's, who's going to be, you know, factoring into this as well as he's got play call experience. So uh, I got to tell you, you know, I, I think again, you'd be lying if you said you you weren't concerned when Tommy left and took the opportunity to go to Alabama. Um, but again, just from knowing Tommy, Uh, You know, I I love him and I think he's a hell of an offensive coordinator. Um, Schematically, uh, I would be breaking down film when you see him do things that not a lot of other places do. And you can see why Nick Saban wanted him on his staff because he's seeing the same thing I'm seeing and many other people are seeing. And, you know, sometimes that doesn't always equate to as many wins or as much, you know, many yards of production as you want. Um, but there's a lot of moving parts in how you construct an offense and how you call a game. And, and I think he's one of the best in college football. So I wish him the best. And I think he'll do a hell of a job for Alabama uh, down there. But you know, when he left, I think everyone had the same reaction. They're going, Oh no, like now you've got a hole to fill and, and you can be concerned by that. But I kind of had the feeling when they hired coach Parker in the first place, given his past experience, that he might be someone who, who you know, fills that role in the future. And, you know, here he stands, a legendary offensive line coach, not just at Notre Dame or college football, but anyone in the NFL would tell you that, too. He's one of the most respected. And I don't know that you could have found a better replacement than Joe Rudolph. You know, I, I have the utmost respect for him from, you know, calling his games as an analyst for Fox, from being around that program and seeing the way they've developed offensive linemen, the various run blocking schemes and all the thousand yard rushers that the offensive linemen up in Wisconsin help able to kind of pave the way. Uh, So he's got a ton of experience with a lot of things that I think coach Freeman wants to do. And a lot of things that Notre Dame has done uh, from an offensive line standpoint, which is a huge component. I think of being successful in college football. And then finally coach Cadelli. I mean, he's a former quarterback, which you have to love. There's just certain conversations and perspectives that you can only provide, especially to those guys who are under duress and they're in the pocket. They're, they're around all the the fire that is, you know, dealing with uh, navigating a, a pocket and trying to throw an accurate pass, get the ball off. Um, there's certain things that you know really only a guy who's played the position can communicate and can understand, and so that experience to me is valuable uh, Just his his football mind too, from the you know few opportunities I've had to speak with him, uh, and from following him from from since he like you look at that and you say okay like there's a lot of things to build off of. So I'm really excited about their staff, and uh, sometimes it can be a little bit of a work in progress as you figure out your identity to, be, to begin a season but that's every year. You know, that's no different than last year where Tyler Buckner takes over as a starter and you've got an offensive line that's still gelling and, you know, you're all of a sudden looking at now you got Drew Pine in there and and he's going to bring a completely different skill set to the quarterback position and and your offense is going to change. And then it's figuring out that identity. And and I think you saw what the identity was of the team that second half of the season moving forward outside of the fact that Michael Mayer was a beast. And and, and pretty much at any situation, you could just throw to Michael Mayer and he'd make a play for you. So... (laughs) Um, that's always going to be the case uh, every year. I, I think sometimes we get a little too comfortable in thinking, "Hey, the coach has been here for a while; the offense should be, you know, clicking all cylinders." Well, no, it, there's a lot of moving parts, a lot of variables involved.
2: Brady coupling uh, the transfer portal with the NIL here for a second. You know, Notre Dame is limited on the transfers that they can take. They can get grad transfers in, they can get freshmen in, and then it gets really dark and gray in those other classes and then I know that you're involved some with the NIL uh, efforts but but when you couple those two things do you feel like Notre Dame is still as close to having a chance to get into that national championship discussion as they were let's say at the end of the Brian Kelly era not just because Kelly left but because of these new factors that Marcus has to deal with Yeah,
1: I think it provides you the opportunity to, um, you know, really supplement in things that you need. I mean, right. If you felt like there's concern about what's going to happen at the quarterback spot, you know, obviously Sam Hartman's here. And it provides you the uh, the opportunity where if there were any questions or concerns, a lot of those concerns are answered now. So, um, you know, the the top schools, they're not going to, they're not going to make their roster off the transfer portal. They're just not. Um, whether that's the Alabamas, the Georgias, et cetera. And then there'll be some exceptions, right? Like quarterback in particular, I think. And, and that's really where, you know, I can't remember if it was Tyler or Eric, you know, you asked to pose the question earlier, like, how's it going to be viewed? Are there cautionary tales? I think there's a lot of cautionary yeah. tales. And I think they're for a lot of other positions besides quarterback. You know, the quarterback impact is, has been seen. We get it. Only one guy plays. If, if you're not playing and you think you should be, you're probably going to try to go to another opportunity and go get on the field and play. I mean, uh, football is a developmental sport. Reps are important, um, but even more so, I think for the quarterback position than anything else. But the problem is outside of that, you know, a wide receiver. Yeah. You might might be wide receiver number one, but you know, when you've got multiple you know, personnel groupings and, and 11 personnel and 10 personnel where you're playing three, four wide receiver sets, uh, you're going to be rotating some of those guys in, so six might be playing a game, or seven might be playing in a game on offense, and, and rotating through those reps. So it's a little different for other position groups. So I, I kind of look at the top schools, and I'm like, well, is, is Georgia really worried about like the transfer portal and building? No, because they're they're just focused on trying to win another national championship and how they recruit the the top high school guys. Same thing with Bama. You know, they go get you know Tyler Buckner, and we'll see how that plays out. Um, but they've also got two really talented quarterbacks already there in Ty Simpson and Jalen Milrose. So, um, you know, Milrose is an incredible athlete. Ty Simpson was one of the you know better uh, rated quarterbacks coming out of his, his class. So we'll, we'll see what what that looks like once they come into fall camp. Um, but outside of that, like, I mean, is, are you really looking at Ohio state saying like, Oh, those guys are, you know, losing a bunch of guys, to the transfer portal. No, you're, you're supplementing in from time to time, yeah. but that's about it. So, I think the top programs don't look at it the same way as if you're Colorado or, or, or you're somewhere else um you know I, I think if you look at Lincoln Riley I think everyone looks at Southern Cal and they say well they're they're bringing a lot of guys well that was because there was a huge deficit in particular on defense but also in the trenches like I mean like when I, when I played against USC you could make the case that it was the greatest USC team of all time um mm-hmm. and the difference to me wasn't the skill players as I mean Reggie's Bush was probably the best college football player I've ever seen, but mm. their offensive line were studs. Their defensive yeah. front were studs. I mean, that was the, always the biggest and hardest thing about playing against those teams were how good they were in the trenches. And, and you can make that case throughout all of college football. Every single team wins the national championship. They dominate up front. Um, and so that was, that's more what Lincoln Riley's doing is he's supplementing a lot of what they're doing uh, to me more so in the trenches than anywhere else. And in particular on defense where they were really, really bad uh, the past couple of years. So again, it's a supplement. It's not going to be what you hang your hat on Um, because if if that player's leaving for somewhere else, in most cases, you might have a chance to offer him a scholarship when he was coming out of high school and you didn't. So there's a reason for that. And and yeah, he may be be a little more developed and better than what he was, but you know, he's, he's, he's obviously not the player that you necessarily thought he was going to be It's just more of a need.
2: Just overlaying NIL on top of that transfer portal, then do you also think Notre Dame is in a good spot to be competitive in with that new world kind of overlaid over the transfer portal?
1: Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, here's the truth of the matter: um, you've got a lot of people who aren't, you know, doing what they're supposed to be doing. And I don't know who is ever going to, you know, get them in trouble or not. I think the University of Miami was a really interesting case study and, you know, how they, they viewed John Ruiz and some of the actions that were taking place with that. And the, ultimately the NCAA didn't didn't do as much. Um, but, you know, you're not allowed to be talking to kids who are in the transfer portal. They're prospective student-athletes. That's just that's just how it works. Um, or even high school student-athletes. They're prospective student-athletes. As a collective, you're not allowed to be having those conversations with them. Um, but the University of Notre Dame is, is in as good a place as anyone. And I can promise you that. Uh, from the work that we've already done, um, and not just with the football team, but with the men's, women's basketball team, other sports too, at the University of Notre Dame. We would like to to believe we've got a very unique approach where it's not just about NIL. I I think so many people make it about that. And in in the case of all of these athletes, you're never going to make as much off NIL as you will as a professional athlete. Mm -hmm. You're just – you're not. And so the whole it's short-sighted if people are, are making decisions based off money now and potentially sacrificing their growth and development in, in the future where you wouldn't be able to play in the NFL, where you wouldn't be able to play in the NBA, WNBA, where you're gonna be making more money then. I mean, I think the long the long view is you need to factor that in. You know, where am I best gonna be developed for that opportunity? But also where am I gonna be developed for when that day ends in the NFL or in the NBA or WNBA? You know, do I have a degree? Do I have a, a, a foundation in my education to help me with that transition into the professional world? Because most athletes are so competitive, they got to do something when they're done. And, and figuring that out and having a degree to do so makes it a lot easier, and especially with a, the Notre Dame Alumni Network. So um, I would say this from our collective, the Friends of University of Notre Dame, we're in a great spot. Um, we've been incredibly involved and active with student athletes at the University of Notre Dame, championing so many different charities in the South Bend area. Um, and, and so I I think that's the biggest thing is we're making a real impact with student athletes, with a lot of nonprofits, a lot of charities, and we're helping those student athletes to understand the power of their brand, the power of Notre Dame's brand and combining those two to help create an identity of what they're really about. And more than just a student athlete, but about a charitable cause that they're passionate about and they're able to help out with. So, um, you know, we take pride in that and making this conversation more than just about NIL and and what someone's being compensated for, but what someone's really doing with the time uh, that they have during their time at Notre Dame.
0: Brady, in your time with Fund, which has been running for a bit over a year now, what what have you learned about the NIL space and how to better or best help these Notre Dame student athletes, and then also sort of broadening it beyond Notre Dame? what have you learned about the reality or fiction of what's the sort of the numbers that are being reported about other collectives and other high profile recruits and transfers and those kinds of things?
1: Yeah. I I had a conversation the other day. I'm part of the Orange Bowl committee. And so I was speaking with, uh, uh, I'll just put it this way, an alum of a school in the South and uh, Mm -hmm. it's been well reported that uh, there is a, 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 a supposed deal that fell through. And I just kind of laughed to myself because you know when you're when you're in it and you're you're a part of a collective and you kind of know what's going on, you know how all there's just so much trash and and things that are thrown out there that have, they're not legitimate, and you've got websites that put on valuations of players and they have no clue, you know they're just trying to corner the market with the type of valuations they put on it because no one else is doing it, and it's so like oh well let's create a website, let's create a valuation for a player. And then if we're doing this, no one else is doing it, then people will just use us as a standard and everyone's going to think this is what they should be getting compensated. It's like, it's not how it works. You know, in the real world, right? If you make an investment or you're spending money on something, you have to be able to measure it based on your return on investment, your ROI. And if you can't measure that, or if, if the money that you're putting into something isn't creating enough of an ROI to keep you in business, it's not sustainable. So uh, it's just, it's, it's funny to me because- you know and look it's it, this is it, it's not fans fault or you know uh anyone else who's involved in, in the media they're just trying to report what they hear but the truth is is there is no fact checking there there's no back and forth of hey what what did the kid actually make in that NIL deal when you compare it to because everyone tries to make the transfer portal sound like it's free agency it's not the reality is if you are an NFL general manager and you have a player you're talking to that's a free agent and you offer him a deal and he says, you know what? No, I'm being offered something better somewhere else. When that player goes and signs with that other team, they're going to file the contract with the NFLPA. And it's going to be public knowledge for everyone to go look and say, okay, did that team actually pay him more? Did he get the clause that he was trying to fight for with us with that team? No trade clause, no franchise tech, whatever the case is. You can see it all. It's, It's all transparent. And that's more speaks to the issue we have right now where the NCAA is just taking their hands off. They're trying to, I'm sure, lobby or put pressure on the federal government to do something, which I would argue that, okay, you can wait on the federal government to come in and save the day. But I would hope that the adults in the room get all come together and realize that they need to get a grip on this. The, 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 the adults in the room, whether it's you know coaches, whether that's you know commissioners, presidents of universities, they need to come together and collectively start talking about it to be able to get back to some center of saying these are still student athletes. This is not a professional sport. And we shouldn't be conducting ourselves in that way. Education matters. Degrees matter. You know, the long term of, of the impact that we could have on these individuals, it matters. And we got to be careful about how we go about, um, you know, positioning student athletes right now and what we're allowing them to do because they might not understand the harm that they're creating look, I'm as big of a component for NIL as anyone else. Hence, one of the reasons why I wanted to create a collective a nonprofit that helps student athletes at the University of Notre Dame. But I'm also cognizant of the fact that that doesn't mean that there's not people out there who are abusing it or not following the rules uh, or finding ways around doing maybe some of the you know, guidelines, things that are put forth either by the state law or by the NCAA. And you know that's, in some cases, unavoidable. You're always going to have that. Uh, and so that's where you you know to me I think you've got to be Notre Dame and that's where you're unique. You you do it the right way and that's the only way you know how to do it.
2: My my last one for you, Brady, is a two-part question. One is can you tell our listeners how they can get involved with the Third and Goal Foundation? And the second part of it is, does Kavanaugh Quinn yet have an NIL deal? <laughs>
1: Kavanaugh Quinn doesn't have anything right now. We we need to get him a, a formula nil deal.
2: That dude just
1: is hungry all the time. I'm um, hoping he can figure out how to sleep through the night at this point because he wakes up in the middle of the night. It takes about an hour to to, to get down a bottle. So um, that that day is uh, hopefully coming. But yeah, I, I appreciate you bringing up the third goal foundation, Eric. Because again, this is. That was part of the impact that Notre Dame had on me. You know, it was my upbringing with my father, who was served in Vietnam as a Marine. My, my grandfather, his side, serving in World War II. And when you go to Notre Dame, and, you, and every time you're in uh, the Goog, and you're sitting in the indoor, and you see God Country Notre Dame, you, you always think about something bigger than yourself. And when I was playing, and a lot of times in training camp, you'd you have uh, veterans come to our practices. You know, you get a chance to t- sit down and talk about people who you know go a- across the world to defend our liberties and freedom. And it, it always, I always felt guilty about being able to play professional football and meanwhile, thinking about all the brave men and women who go out and defend our country. And so it's why I started the third and goal foundation. People always ask about the name. And I, I, I was born into a, uh new England Patriots, uh, you know, coaching lineage, if you will, between Charlie, <laughs> and Romeo Cornell and getting traded with, you know, by Josh McDaniels or, you know, going there with in Denver with them. And, Uh, being around Eric Mangini who was there as well, being around all these coaches who really emphasized third and goal because it was a situation that, that played out throughout the course of games. And a lot of times that four point swing with the way the defense was able to get off the field and force a field goal, or the offense was able to execute and score a touchdown made the difference over the course of the game in winning and losing. And and I felt like at, at this point where our foundation would interject with veterans, you know, With whether it's the educational proponents that we provide, or home remodels, or just even the gifts that sometimes you know we get contacted about, we felt like those were like critical situations throughout the game that sometimes can make the difference in winning and losing. So I felt like the name was appropriate, and you know we initially started uh, building homes making making them uh, handicap accessible for for wounded veterans. Uh, My dad was doing a lot of the work there because he's a contractor back up in Ohio. Um, you know, from that experience, it kind of led to um, just helping student veterans come back and start continuing to finish their education. So we've got a program out in the summertime called the Warrior Scholar Project uh, at the University of Notre Dame, where where we're really uh, focuses in on that we've got programs at the Ohio State University, University of Cincinnati, uh, where we've got other programs that help current student veterans who are are enrolled in classes, uh, be able to see through their degree and, and help them graduate and help them have a little easier time transitioning back into civilian life. So uh, we're incredibly proud of the work we do. Um, you can find all our information at the number three, uh, rdngold.com uh, or third and uh, Pretty much. If you generally search the third goal foundation, you'll, you'll find us on there. So that's the easiest way to help. Um, we obviously have the ability to donate there online. Uh, we've got a golf outing coming up in Ohio in August, which is a ton of fun. Um, and, and outside of that, you know, we're always looking for, you know, especially around different projects that we've got, uh, volunteers to help out if we've got a project in your area.
0: Well, Brady, we appreciate you, the work you're doing with the third and goal foundation. We appreciate the time you've given us today. Um, and we look forward to continuing to follow the growing of your family, um, and the the work (laughs) that you're continuing to do with Notre Dame's Fund foundation and helping out student athletes.
1: I appreciate it, guys. It's always great to be out with you, um, Tyler and Eric. And the last thing I just say is uh, keep an eye out. There will be, there'll be a press release coming uh, about the Friends of the University of Notre Dame uh, and some of the changes that we're making, some of the things uh, we'll, we'll be doing moving forward. But, uh, you know, the reality is um, the conversation around collectives and really NIL, it so much gets to be about everything outside of the student-athlete. And, and that's the hard thing, I think, for us, too, is we always want the emphasis to be on the good that they're doing and the recognition that they should receive for being the, the quality person that they are to come to Notre Dame, to be a student athlete, to be able to handle it all and still be able to give back to the community as well.
0: All right. Now it's time for questions. You can submit questions to us on Twitter or the Insider Lounge message board before every podcast. I'm at TJamesND and Eric's at E. HansonND. First one we have for you is from at DrewBrennan77 on the Insider Lounge. With how fast the recruitment is moving on Teddy Rezac, do you think that Endy thinks he is a special talent who is going to blow up here soon? Any inside info on how this all came together so quickly and so under the radar? An interesting note is that he has an older brother at Vandy, but he is not showing an offer from Coach Clarkley and
2: staff. Thoughts here. You want me to take the lead on this one, Eric? (laughs) Uh, I I can go. I'll go ahead and give my take, and then you can correct it. All right. Okay. My my take is that it's a combination of Notre Dame swinging and missing on a couple of uh, prospects with more proven, tra- proven track records, maybe not gaining traction with some other guys that they thought they might be able to, and, and then finding a guy with intriguing traits that was a great fit uh, who they're willing to green light before he blows up. And I think if you wanted maybe a parallel, maybe Brandon Hillman, Yeah, Sort of fits this profile in the last um, class where he had virtually no offers. And then by the time he signed with Notre Dame, uh, he had some pretty good offers and then even got more once he was released from his national letter of intent. Uh, As far as the Clark Lee point, um, you know, again, he might not have seen this version of. Teddy when he recruited his older brother i know that uh the older brother had a scholarship offer to air force and then flipped to vanderbilt came as a walk-on he's a you know shorter maybe not as fast version of it maybe they play the same position so i'm not sure why clark uh didn't get involved in that so um, now tyler can correct everything i just said
0: yeah yeah i can't speak to what clark lee's thought process was on that but uh Maybe maybe Vanderbilt felt like it could wait. Like it's not like like until Notre Dame offered, it wasn't like there was a lot of a lot of big movement for Teddy Rezac. The most recent offer he had was from Boston College, and that was a number of weeks ago. Um, so they were, maybe they were maybe Vanderbilt was hoping to keep him under wraps longer and then feel like it could get him later. Um, but like like you said, uh Vanderbilt didn't even offer his brother a scholarship, so maybe they they, they didn't see a scholarship-worthy player, and Teddy Rezac, I don't know. Um, Notre Dame was certainly familiar with him because they were already recruiting one of his teammates, a younger linebacker, uh, Christian Jones, who plays sort of the opposite outside linebacker position that Teddy was playing to start last season. And then he moved to safety because of of an injury. Um, So he got to show some of his his versatility and athleticism in doing that. Um, So Notre Dame was aware of him. It went down to omaha last week for an in-person evaluation and was confident enough to extend an offer following that and yeah i i I drew the same parallel to brandon hillman i think teddy was a little bit more above the radar than brandon hillman was in comparison like brandon hillman was like way off the radar i didn't know anything about him or he didn't have any other offers when i first heard about him um so Notre Dame decided that they like him and was willing to take him from the moment it offered because they knew that things could move quickly there. And Teddy quickly scheduled a visit to visit this past weekend. He was on campus Sunday and Monday. I have a story up on the insideindiesports.com website discussing with him his visit. So you can read more about that there. Um, but, But Notre Dame knows, knew that if it got in on Rezac, that it could potentially land him quickly before others can get in. And try to sway him elsewhere and I think the fact that Notre Dame is this sort of big program that maybe brings some other attention to him sort of a lot gives Notre Dame an advantage there it's like well yeah but we were the ones that felt the most confident in you why did these other schools wait on you so um I think that that's sort of what what happened there I mean th- this this kind of stuff happens all the time where Notre Dame's evaluating guys that we're not discussing until they offer them I mean there's all kinds of evaluations that's going on behind the scenes and, and sometimes they, they they lead to this and sometimes they lead to nothing but Notre Dame is constantly looking at different recruits across the country that it thinks could maybe be under the radar at some point especially at this part of the the recruiting cycle where Notre Dame knows it still needs linebackers it doesn't have a linebacker commitment yet um it's lost out on potentially some guys that could come to Notre Dame and still in the mix for some guys that could come to Notre Dame Um, so I think that the need is there and Notre Dame identified Teddy as someone that has the ability that could fill, fill part of that need. All right. Next question is from Marie Biafore at Biafore underscore Marie. Are you at all concerned about O-line recruiting besides safety? What positions do you think Notre Dame needs to recruit well the most in the 2024
2: class? Um, I personally am not concerned, but I know people that are, (laughs) um, (laughs) <laughs> you know, let, let's kind of give you a reset here. They're, I believe in this class, they're looking for four. They could take five. And I, I do think it's a legitimate question. Are they aiming high enough? You know, Rudolph was the last of the assistant coaches to get here. Uh, Peter Jones from Malvern, Pennsylvania, I think a solid interior prospect, was already committed uh, from the Harry He stand time here, uh, he's actually from Harry's hometown. Um, I think there's some concern of whether Anthony Knapp was a reach. Um, you know, he was on campus for the blue goal game, and when you looked at the pictures of the other prospects being taken pictures from him, he looks like he's got a lot of physical development to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think if they get Knapp and Jones and real and styles prescott from indiana and grant bricks from iowa then they have the wild card with Guerby lambert if i didn't butcher his first name from massachusetts who i think would really be the jewel of that class um then i think that's a pretty good class um and then when you look at the 2025s you know i think there's two really good ones that that um Coach Rudolph has offered that that seem to be receptive and in being involved at this point. Avery Gash from Michigan and Owen Streebig from Wisconsin. Uh, so it looks like at least in that class that that he's aiming for the higher tiered prospects. And so we'll see how it plays out. If they swing and miss it, guys like Prescott and Bricks and, and Lambert never visits, then maybe there's some concern there. Uh, and then I'll do the other positions after Tyler talks about the offensive line.
0: Yeah, I, I don't know that they'll go get to five. I think it'll be it's three and then maybe four, I think is more likely what this, this offensive line class ends
2: up with especially with nobody in the transfer portal after spring.
0: Right. So I, I think I think it it could potentially be like a Grant Bricks or Styles Prescott situation. I don't know that they would take both of them and then not leave a spot for Gerby Lambert. Um, unless they felt like for sure, like the, that Gerby Lambert isn't worth their time, but I don't, that's not the, that's not my understanding of where Notre Dame sees the situation currently. Um, I was, I was pretty transparent when Anthony Knapp committed Notre Dame that I didn't quite see it with him. I didn't see a, a Notre Dame caliber offensive lineman um, on his film. And there's definitely growth to, to go there for him. So I understand if people were concerned based on that, but I think in terms of, Recruits that are still available for Notre Dame, I still think that there are good guys out there. I do like Lambert and Bricks more as prospects than I do at Prescott currently. Um, and then there's, I mean, Notre Dame has sort of outside chances of maybe like Kevin Haywood or Liam Andrews still being interested in the long run. Um, but I think part of what, I mean, if you're, if you just start of basing this on stars um, and what, and rankings, Notre Dame was was sort of behind on some of the national guys in this class because Harry Heistan wasn't necessarily interested in offering them whether it was Brandon Baker from Modern Day High School or Andrew Sprague, um, who ended up committing to Michigan um, after visiting Notre Dame. So Notre Dame was a little bit behind with that. And then, like as Eric said in the 2025 class, they're not in that same situation. It seems like Joe Rudolph is being very active and getting out ahead of, uh, of with some of these top ranked offensive linemen in that class. So I think um, I'm not necessarily concerned currently with where things stand for Notre Dame with offensive
2: line recruiting. And then as far as positions, I mean, you know, obviously they want to do well at every position, but I think where there's the most work to be done, leg work to be done to, to finish strong, I would say offensive line, defensive line, linebacker and safety. Those would be the four position groups for me.
0: Yeah, I mean, if if we're not considering, like, if we just, if we're not going back to, like, the beginning of the cycle, um, quarterback was the most important position that Notre Dame needed to recruit right. well, and it did that. Um, in terms of positions that aren't addressed, I think defensive line is the top one for me. Um, Notre Dame needs to get Elijah Rushing and Justin Scott in order to have an elite class. It needs to get Logan Thomas and Malachi Williams to sort of elevate the standard, but maybe not. If they, if they get those two guys and they don't get rushing and scout, you're still not as great as you could be, but I still think that's a pretty good class. Um, and so I think that's the biggest. Safety, there still is work to do there. Notre Dame has a lot of options. I, I, safety is, I think, maybe the position I have the least um, maybe confidence in, in terms of who, like the talent level of the guys that they're going after. It's They're all sort of like very question mark three-star even unrated guys um that i i know notre dame certainly feels like they're they they like those guys or they wouldn't be going after them um but there's not necessarily the same sort of consensus from the analyst point of view um in terms of the talent level of those guys that Dame still going after there so there's so that those are like the two positions to me that i think it's there's there's some concern whether it's in terms of being able to close on the top options remaining or sort of, okay, what what is actually Notre Dame going after there in terms of the talent level? Uh, Next question is from at ND Jeff 06. It seems that several beat writers have alluded to ND becoming better in the NIL game. What has changed for Notre Dame to believe for people to believe this? Does ND have other things, the fund group, other, other things other than the fund group helping in this area? And is there another collective fans don't know about?
2: Um, well, again, you know, Brady addressed that we're gonna see some evolution in the fund group, and that's gonna be uh, you know, probably next week we'll get the details about that or that they'll become public. Um, Notre Dame has funneled a lot of resources into being better in the NIL space. Uh, there's also other, you know, there's a partnership with NBC and the Mogul app that Brandon Winbush talked about on a couple of podcasts ago. Uh, So there are other avenues and there's things that aren't related to collectives that are also NIL opportunities for Notre Dame players. Notre Dame is not apt to flaunt it, at least not publicly. They might do it in recruiting with players and say, Hey, here's what some of our players were able to, to do, but they're just not, big into making it, um, you know, part of their window dressing about the Notre Dame student athlete experience uh, because that's not the, what Notre Dame wants to put out there as an image.
0: Yeah. I mean, we, if, if there were, if there were more details we could share right now, we would have shared them. <laughs> so yeah. Um, right. Uh, and uh Brady deferred to a press release that will be coming out in terms of in terms of the the changes that have undergone with fund um as it relates to that but but fund is still like the the leading uh cause that's sort of connected to Notre Dame without being um illegally connected I guess would be the right way to say it uh but yeah I mean I, there are other things but it, it I mean those are the the other things are more like, opportunities that come with being a Notre Dame athlete. Um, and the, the attraction to that, like you mentioned, the mogul platform is a way that guys can use to connect to, to brands. And there, there's a history of brands working with Notre Dame athletes at this point. And so, um, that continues to happen with, whether it's football or with the women's basketball program or hockey, there's, there's different, different folks from different sports are all, all have different things available to them based on, um, their their popularity and a lot of that has to do with social media as well so there are other things but in terms of like the collective fund is sort of the leading collective in the notre dame market right now next question is from nathan reynolds at enforcers 2117 i heard that tyler buckner was just as good of a safety as he was a quarterback in high school was there any talks about him switching positions especially since Andy is looking for a safety in the portal
2: also what is the equivalent of the four-game redshirt in football and basketball well, the first part of your question Nathan, I think is a really good question what I what I'm going to dock you on is your sourcing. You may want to give them a sobriety test because
0: <laughs> thank you. Tyler
2: Buckner was one of the very few players on that Bishop School football team that did not go both ways. So the could he be a good safety? in at that school probably, but, but that he was, is an embellishment or a fabrication. So with Notre Dame football, there was zero talk about him moving to safety. And, and even if he, even if all that earlier part were true, that's not what he wanted to hear. He, he wanted to play quarterback. He still feels like he has a future beyond college football at that position. So, um, do you want to address that before I get into the No, basketball? yeah. I mean,
0: I would just say I would I was just gonna say whoever told you that about Tyler Buckner, I would listen to them
2: less. <laughs> okay. So as far as the red shirt equivalent of the four-game football rule, there is none in basketball. You can't play a regular season game and can get a conventional red shirt. There was talk a couple of years ago about modifying it to six or eight games, but it didn't happen now. There are medical red shirts in basketball still. And the conditions that have to be met with that is the injury has to occur in the first half of the season. And you can't have played more than a third of your team's total games at the end of the season. For example, if your team plays 28 games, your limit is going to be nine that you could have played in and still apply for that medical red shirt.
0: Yeah, it's uh it's it's pretty sad. football football is the one that has the the rare exception for just like playing and and you you can play in some games regardless of your health um and still get that red shirt right away um and, and basketball is different. All right, uh Mr. Nev at M Mr. Irish Red asked surprised it was more of a statement than a question, but I put a question mark at the end of it surprised by the recruiting of the men's basketball program. So I would, I'm I'm interpreting that as are you surprised
2: by the recruiting of the men's basketball program? So I would say not really because I think Micah Shrewsbury, the new coach stayed true to his mission statement, which was building primarily with high school kids. So he ended up getting the three from that had been signed with Penn state adding it to the one that didn't get out of his letter of intent. That was Marcus Burton. And then adding, he's added a couple of transfers. Uh, and he said he's willing to take transfers. Now, one of those was his own transfer. It was uh, it was Keba Jai who played his freshman season at Penn State. Um, he's entertaining more. The um, reigning Division II player of the year was on campus this week. Um, and they're trying to get him. He's a uh, front court player, so uh, I'm I'm not surprised either pleasantly or unpleasantly. I think this is about what I expected from him. What what I think is very encouraging is the inroads that Micah Shrewsbury is making with the 2024 and 2025 classes. There seems to be a lot of positive interest in Notre Dame, and already one commitment from the 2024
0: class yeah i I agree with you that it's not really surprising i i would say it was kind of what was expected that they've mostly brought penn state recruits with them um at this point i still think it's commendable um if if it's not even though it's not surprising but i also would say it's i don't know that it's necessarily the end goal i think notre Notre dame under Michael shrewsbury is going to want to recruit even better than it it is um with that group of kids I, i um from a rivals rankings perspective, Notre Dame, when it signed its class in November under Mike Bray, which was of three players, it was ranked 35th in the country. Um, in that that trio, um, was only only one of those three remained. Marcus Burton signing with Notre Dame, and then Parker Fredrickson um, and Brady Dunlap have gone to Wake Forest and St. John's, respectively. Um, and then bringing the three other guys in from Penn State that improved Notre Dame's class to number 29 um in the 2020 um three class so I think Notre Dame still has higher goals than that um and I, I think that they will do a better job of that I, I think um specifically starting with in-state recruiting it was kind of funny that this is the this is only like the third time since I think it was like 2012 that Notre Dame has had more than one Indiana signee in a class, um, which that seems kind of crazy. The only other two classes were Demetrius Jackson and Austin Torres. Um, and then the two kids from South Bend, J.R. Konezhne and Blake Wesley. Um, and now that they have Logan Iams and Marcus Burton in the same class, they've done that already under Micah Shrewsbury. And I would expect there to be, we'll, we'll see more of that moving forward. Um, there's a lot of talent in the state, um, and Micah Shrewsbury has a lot of connections in the state and will be hitting up many, many a high school and AAU circuit in the state to to, to try to improve that in state recruiting. Next question is from at Russo 1957. If Andy doesn't add a portal safety, what do you think their backup plan will be?
2: Um, well, they are hosting a portal safety this week and Antonio Carter, the second from Rhode Island. Um, if he is interested in another program and doesn't want to come to Notre Dame, I think they can look at Ryan Barnes and our Clarence Lewis in fall camp. If they feel like they need to get more depth, they'll have a better read on Ben Minnick and Aidan, Aidan Schuler's both their progress and their health. At that point, Ben Minnick, um, injured a thumb late in spring practice and missed about a week, which was a bunch of practices. Uh, Adon missed the entire spring practice with uh, shoulder surgery, but both those guys are expected to be ready to go in August. So, and, and they can certainly continue to portal shop, but Antonio Carter seems like the guy that's at the top of the list, that's also a fit and his offer sheet seems to be growing by the day he's got more than 20 offers and and a lot of those are power five offers
0: yeah i i would i mean to me the only backup plan that makes sense is ryan barnes playing safety um if they're not getting a portal safety but um i mean i think i think that's that's the answer I i don't know what else would be i mean maybe clarence lewis i don't think it would be clarence lewis i think it's more likely that it'd be ryan barnes so that's as succinct as I can be about that. Um at Charles W. Wolf, what are some realistic hopes for the new NCAA president Baker regarding NIL reform and perhaps some transfer portal tweaks? I am all for expanded opportunities for players, but college sports seems like a soap opera without a script.
2: Well, Charlie Baker used to be the um, governor of Massachusetts, so he does have some political connections. Um I think you want to look at this from the two sides. I, there's things that he wants to do for schools. There's things that he wants to do for players. So as far as schools and what schools want, they want a uniform set of rules. And the the challenge towards getting there is there's all these state laws that have been passed and none of them are uniform. And you also have some recent state laws that take away the NCAA's power to enforce its own rules. And here's a quote from Charlie at a recent uh, talk that he gave in Dallas. He said, those 1,200 schools in the NCAA, and he's talking about all divisions, I'll tell you what they all agree on. They agree we need a consistent national standard on NIL. I can't believe there's a school that wouldn't go along with that. That's pretty important to have the 1,200 schools with a consensus. They all have a congressman. They all have two senators. They all have spheres of influence that has to be mobilized. And then at an earlier talk in March, he shared these ideas about how they might want to reform this in the favor of players. And he said, the other thing I would speak on to specifically is trying to create what I would call some consumer protection For families and student athletes around name and image and likeness. Um, The only thing that's true about it at this point is everybody lies. I would love to create some transparency and accountability around that so that families actually know what they're getting into. And I would really like to see some sort of uniform standard contract so that when somebody signs it, they know that they're signing the same kind of agreement everybody else is signing. Yeah,
0: I mean, I think I don't. I, it's the NCAA, like in wanting to do this, like the NCAA is like wanting to have power over something. It is ceding the power too because it doesn't want to pay the players. So I, I'm not sure that they're ever going to get consensus on those kinds of things because they're, 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 they're they want to have power, but they also want to not be responsible for for, for paying the players and the the the. Uh, um, the consequences that come with that. Um, so I don't know. I, I I don't have a lot of faith in there being a lot of sort of reform that actually matters. Um, I don't know how you put the genie back in the bottle on a lot of these things. Maybe they can police the NIL rules better, but I I don't know. I don't, I, I, my confidence has not been moved (laughs) at this point in terms of what, what, what will change that, that will make much of a difference. Next question is from Marie Biafore at Biafore underscore Marie. Another one from Marie. We are hearing how access to assistant coaches is great under Marcus Freeman, and there was none under Brian Kelly. Why do you think that was? Was Brian Kelly just trying to control the narrative entirely at some point? Shouldn't he have realized everybody knew what
2: that was what he was trying to do? So when Brian Kelly first walked in the door in December 2009, he was pretty open to the concept of having a lot of things, practices open, uh, assistant coaches speaking, and so forth. And and when he was at Cincinnati, it was kind of a necessity to even get reporters to come out to practice, was to have that kind of access. Um, And then very early in his time here, he became concerned about one voice being that voice and having consistent message coming from the program and you got to realize one of the early influences for both Charlie Weiss and Brian Kelly in this regard was Bill Belichick who does not let his assistant coaches speak and I will say this there were times Brian was right about it you know Brian's memory sometimes or his knowledge of certain position groups wasn't as deep yeah and he would say something and you talk to an assistant coach and there would be some contradiction there so that's That was generally his hesitancy with that. I know at that time I was working with WSBT radio and I think it was 2016 season. We wanted to get Mike Denbrock on to do kind of a review of the previous week's game on, on Mondays. And I had to do some hard convincing with Brian Kelly to uh, convince him that this was going to be a, positive thing and and some of his concerns were us trying to maybe trick den brock into contradicting what brian had said so i thought well you know den brock is free to contradict him but we're not going to try to trick him into it so uh we ended up getting to do that in 2016
0: yeah and there's there's certain waves of like certain assistants don't want to talk um like Bob Diaco did, didn't necessarily want to talk to people. Um, Brian Van so Gorder didn't. Brian Van Gorder didn't. So when you have a string of defensive coordinators that don't want to talk to people, um, then that coordinator access goes away. And then so I think part 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 of it was that. Um, and then there was also sort of the realization or belief from Brian Kelly that this is how it should be in terms of what he wanted to be out there. I mean, towards the end, it was even like the, there were some coaches that, weren't even made available for like media scrums at, at like or like that were new hires um I I want to say like Lance Taylor might have not been at, at one point um and I because I, I think at one point we were the only ones that had talked to him for a story that we did at the South Bend Tribune just because they gave us access to him during the summer um and so I think there's been there's been weird out of, there were weird oddities towards the end of the Kelly tenure as it related to that but and I mean I think Marcus Freeman seems to be more open to that. Like it's probably naturally going to trend that way that at at the beginning, you want to be as friendly as you can to the media. And then maybe you get reasons that you decide, well, maybe I don't want, maybe let's, let's limit this. And sort of the give and take so far has been, well, we get a lot of lots of lots of access to players and coaches, but we don't get a lot of access to practice, at least meaningful practice. Um, So I think that that has been, what the give and take has been there. And as long as they're still giving (laughs) to us in in some way, rather than just all taking, I think we're, we're, we're okay with that. Uh, Next question is from Chris Koziak at C underscore K underscore 42. You're building a schedule and you get to pick the next three
2: shamrock series, host cities and opponents. Go. Okay. So green Bay was always on the top of my list. And then the pandemic canceled that it's been rescheduled versus Wisconsin. So I will set that aside and not include that in this exercise. So Notre Dame hasn't played Oregon very often. I thought that would be kind of cool. So where should that take place? I mean, probably out in that part of the country, Notre Dame likes to play in the pro stadium. So, um, Playing Oregon and Seattle maybe makes sense. Uh, I thought about Auburn. Notre Dame has never played Auburn, and I think that that would be a cool uh, series, and so I think uh, either Atlanta or Nashville maybe makes sense for that. Notre Dame likes to get to Atlanta because they recruit Georgia so um, avidly, and then I was it was kind of a coin flip between Boise and Florida for me. Uh, The there's only been the bowl game with Florida; they haven't played in the regular season. Boise, they haven't played them. The Boise game, if you're going to play Oregon and Seattle, I don't know where you would play Boise where it would make sense. So I went with Florida in that sense, and you know, plop it in Tampa where Notre Dame does a lot of recruiting but it's far enough away from Gainesville that it's not you know right in their backyard uh so uh, those were the ones I came up with so yours
0: were more team-based rather than a location-based you found a location based off the team more, more or Correct. less right yeah yeah I, I was kind of the same way um maybe that's just because they have played in so many different spots now that <laughs> they right. seem to run out of spots or like it's like, okay, yeah, it'd be cool for them to play in New Orleans, but, like, who do you want them to play in New Orleans? Like, obviously, I don't know that you want to play LSU in New Orleans. Yeah. Like that would, that, I, so here's my LSU one. Play against LSU in Boston for Brian Kelly. I think that would be hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> play, play a Shamrock series against against Brian Kelly and LSU in Boston. Um, I enjoyed Las Vegas, so I'm uh putting the, that back on the schedule. So I suggested Washington. You could do Oregon. Pick your Pac-12 team not named USC, I think. Or you could even play Boise and, well, USC
2: is a Big Ten team now.
0: Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's true, true. Uh, so looking forward, yeah, we don't, have to, we don't have to think about that, but pick a Pac-12 team with what remains of the Pac-12. Um, and then the other one that I came up with was a little bit off the wall. Um, I was thinking about, okay, who who would it be? I thought like Arrowhead Stadium in Kansas City would maybe be a cool venue. Um, so why not play like Nebraska in Kansas City? I thought that would be kind of a, a cool – now you could play like Kansas, but I think Nebraska would at least give some – some nostalgia feel to it. Um, And maybe um, Matt rule gets the Nebraska program somewhere that it would be entertaining to play against a Nebraska team. Um, But uh, those were the three selections that i made. and let us know whose selections you like better. This is very important to both Eric and I (laughs) know I'm kidding. All right. That's it for today's episode of the inside Indie sports podcast. If you don't already, you can subscribe to us on Apple podcasts, Spotify, Google podcasts, and other popular podcast platforms. If you like what you hear, give us a star rating, leave a review, and share our podcast feed with anyone that knows how to help with the Shamrock Series schedule. Um, We'll be live on YouTube Thursday night for the latest edition of Football Never Sleeps, so check us out there if you haven't already. And make sure you subscribe to us there for free. We are TBD on the next podcast date, so keep an eye out on Twitter and the Insider Lounge for our next request for questions. And until then, stick with insidendsports.com for all your Notre Dame coverage needs.